Paul writes, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he has lavished upon us. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In my line of work, you learn after a little while not to tell people what you do for work. It doesn't really matter where the interaction takes place or with whom, the responses are always kind of the same. I'll be at a backyard barbecue, and when the beans get spilled that I'm a pastor, everyone starts to hide their beer behind their back. Or I'll strike up a casual conversation in a grocery store, and when the truth gets out, the person across from me will confess, you know... I haven't been to church in a very, very, very long time. Or I'll be at a soccer practice, and when one of the other parents finds out what I do for a living, he or she will begin to list off a litany of complaints about the church he or she grew up in. Right before the pandemic, I met someone for the first time. I was introduced to them as a pastor, and they said, Oh, good for you, but I don't need to go to church. Friends, let me tell you, I was hooked in that moment. I said, what do you mean you don't need to go to church? <clears throat> well, he began, I don't need someone like you telling me how I'm supposed to be living my life. I'm a good person already. I mean, is that what the church is for? Is that what it's all about? Do we exist to make people like you into better versions of yourselves Is all of this, the, the singing and the praying and the scriptures and even baptism, I mean, is it all about bringing about better ethical and moral behavior? We put a lot, and by a lot, I mean a lot of emphasis on self-help these days. I mean, the pandemic saw immense spikes in the sales of Pelotons, which are designed to make our bodies look exactly the way we want them to. It saw immense rises in diet books that are also designed to make our bellies look exactly the way we want them to. And a whole slew of how to be the best you. These books were at the top of the list, and they're all designed to make us look and think and act and speak exactly the way we want to. I mean, we, all of us, we like to imagine ourselves as self-made people, and we regularly lift up those who have done so in the greater and in the wider culture. And yet Paul, here in this letter to the church in Ephesus, he speaks not at all about what we must do, but instead he only addresses what God has done. And to really hit the nail on the head, everything he says, it's in the past tense. It's already done and decided. Listen, God has blessed us by choosing us in Jesus Christ. He has made us holy and blameless by bringing us out of bondage to sin and death by the price of his own blood. That's what redemption means. Our holiness, whatever it may be, is only because of Christ's own righteousness. Jesus' perfect life under the law has been transferred to us. It has been credited as our own. The judged judge has come to be judged in our place. God has already done all of this to make us his children, children by adoption with an inheritance. Now consider, Paul doesn't say that this is all something we have to earn by our doing or by our faith. He says it's already ours gifted to us unconditionally, irrevocably, by Jesus. This is God's work, Paul says, before the foundation 
of the world. And that's just the first bit of the passage from today. Paul is emphatic that God is the one who acts. So much so that in Greek, this is one long sentence. There's no punctuation at all. In fact, it's the longest single sentence in the entire New Testament. And God is the subject of every single verb. Translation, it's all about God. And yet we can't help ourselves at times from making church all about us. Sermons and, and Sunday school curricula, they fall and, and they join the mighty chorus of help yourselves. We start by saying things like, well, God loves you. God loves you. But before too long, we start putting lists of expectations on the God loves you. But you kind of need to do these things if you want God to keep loving you. So preachers like me will stand in a place like this and say, God commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves. So you might want to write this down. This is very important material here. You need to work on your racism, sexism, classism, ageism, ethnocentrism. Stop using so much styrofoam. Go vegan, gluten-free, eat locally, think globally, fight against gentrification. While you're at it, don't drink so much. Practice civility, mindfulness, inclusiveness. Take precautions on your dates. Keep the Sabbath, live simply, practice diversity. Do a good deed daily. Give more, complain less. And while you're at it, stop drinking so much. If people have ever been evangelized by fear-mongering or, or higher moral standards, well, sure, they might have been converted away from something, but they haven't been converted to the gospel. Having a preacher stand up here and tell you to do all that stuff is like the dentist telling us that we should floss more. We know that we should do it, but whether we do it is entirely up to us. Now, to be clear, that long list that I just read with one breath, it's filled with good things, things we should all probably be working on. But Jesus doesn't come to make us struggle under the weight of additional expectations. He doesn't wait up on the cross until we've righted all of our wrongs. He doesn't hide behind the stone in the tomb until there's just enough faith in the world before he's resurrected. Jesus does all that he does for us without us having to do much of anything at all. You know, last week after worship, a lot of you said a lot of things to me while we were out on the lawn having lemonade, but one of you said something to me that I haven't been able to get out of my head all week. You said, you know, it's really good to know that God is still God, no matter who stands in that pulpit. It's really nice to know that God is still God, no matter who stands in that pulpit. Friends, that's good theology. And to be clear, I didn't actually say that in my sermon or any other part of the worship service. But if that's what the Holy Spirit conveyed, well then, thank you, Lord. We're not the good news. Not pastors, not lay people, not even the church. We're not the good news. And it's actually very good news that we're not the good news, because if we were, then we'd be doing a terrible job. I mean, have you ever watched the news? Have you ever scrolled through Twitter? We're not doing a very good job, friends. But that's okay, because we're not the good news. We all do things we know we shouldn't. We all avoid do doing things we know we should do. But this is why the good news of Jesus is really good news, because we're the objects of the good news. We receive the good news. 
That is, God does for us what we could never and would never do on our own. God chooses to come to us, not the other way around. Now, of course, there are plenty of people in Scripture who seek after the Lord, but not a, one of them deserved a single thing that the Lord gave them. Have you heard about the wee little man who climbed up in a tree? The one who stole money from the likes of you and me? You know what Jesus does to Zacchaeus? He says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for lunch. You got any turkey and cheese? I'm a fan. And while we're at it, I'm going to bestow a blessing on you for the rest of your life. Have you heard the one about the crowds who were hungry after Jesus preached for an entire afternoon? Well, he multiplies some loaves and some fishes without even taking the, the time to discern whether those people really deserved a meal or not. Again and again and again in the strange new world of the Bible, God meets the people of God in the midst of their sins, down in the muck of life, and offers, of all things, grace. As Robert for our Capon so wonderfully puts it, grace isn't cheap, and it's not even expensive. It's free. God says to us again and again, look, stop listening to what the world tells you you are or what you need to do. You are mine, and I am thine. See, that's the thing that makes the church different than any other organization, different from political parties or rotaries or, or corporations. The thing that makes us different is the gospel. The gospel is what God has chosen to do from before time for us by the cross, through us, by the Spirit. In the end, we don't really bring much of anything to church. Sure, some of us can sing. Some of us can pray. Some of us even like to drop money in the offering plate when it comes around. But all of that it pales in comparison to what God has already done for us. If we bring anything here every week, we bring our brokenness. We bring our shame. We bring our hurt and our pain. And hope, and in hopes that God will make something of our nothing. The church, church isn't about what we do. It's about being reminded over and over again about what God has done for us. And then it's then, only then, in the foreknowledge of God's love that we can begin to take steps into the adventure that is called faith. There was a man in one of my churches who was a dirty, rotten scoundrel. I couldn't stand the man at all. Now, I know that's not very pastoral, so... I'm just, I'm a sinner like you in need of grace. Just bear with me. But this guy, I mean, he was just, he was truly a terrible human being. I can't over-exaggerate that. I mean, he was just bad, okay? You got me? Think about the worst person that's a friend of yours that you just can't stand. This guy was worse. Everything about him drove me crazy. He was older than dirt. He treated everybody like dirt. He was extremely racist, and he felt like it was his mission in, in this life to come to the church once a week to tell me and everybody there what we were doing wrong. Now, it'd be one thing if I felt this way about this guy, but everybody I met, they hated him too. Just about once a week, some poor soul would come wandering into my office, wiping away their tears and bruises because this man had just ripped them a new one when he saw them on the street or at the supermarket. Now, I even tried to work the gospel on him a couple times, you know. Hey, you need to repent of this kind of behavior. Have you not heard what Jesus is talking about in church on Sunday? But none of it worked. 
He stuck to his well-worn path of belittling everyone with an earshot. He scoffed at the thought of ever needing to change anything about his behavior. And he lived every day of his life thinking that he was the wisest and the smartest and just about the best gift God has ever given to this earth. And then he died. And I had to do his funeral. So in the days leading up to this service of death and resurrection, I lamented the fact that it was going to be a nearly empty sanctuary. I wasn't even sure whether his own children would come to the funeral. I mean, even though this man drove me absolutely bonkers, it broke my heart because, friends, there are few things worse than an empty sanctuary for a funeral. And so it came to pass one Thursday morning that I stood by the doors at the church ready to begin the service for a very, very small gathering of people when all of a sudden cars started streaming into our parking lot. One by one, church members, the very same church members who had been so hurt and so wronged by the now dead man, began to make their way into the sanctuary. The very last person to cross the threshold was a fiery old woman from the church who was a regular target of the dead man's insults. And I grabbed her by the hand and I said, what are you doing here? He was terrible to you. I thought you hated the man. She crossed her arms and said, Preacher, aren't you the one who said we have to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? I said, well, yeah, kind of. No, she said, well, and didn't you say that even the worst stinker on earth is someone for who Christ died? Well, I might have said, no, no. And didn't you say just last week, preacher, that nothing, literally nothing, can get between us and the love of God in Christ Jesus? Well, maybe I... No, stop. If what you said is true, then so be it. And then she walked in for the service. Our forgiveness, offered to us before the foundation of all things, is the beginning to which we return to again and again and again. It's what we need to be reminded of in each and every moment of our lives, lest we fall prey to the temptation of believing that we have to save ourselves. If we had to save ourselves, we wouldn't be able to do it. God's grace to us, it runs counter to everything we think we know about how the world works. But that's exactly why God is God and we are not. Throughout our lives, we are told that in ways big and small that we have to do it all. But you know what the gospel says? It's already done. Paul beckons us to the truth of knowing our real condition, that God has willed our blessing before all things. Put another way, before God said, let there be light, God actually said, let there be gospel, let there be good news. That's why, as that fiery woman reminded me all those years ago, that Paul can write in another letter that nothing, nothing can ever get between us and the love of God in Christ Jesus because God's love for us, it precedes all things, which is all just another way of saying this. God loves you, and there ain't nothing you can do about it. God loves you, and there ain't nothing you can do about it. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.